0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com. Hey guys, I'm Teddy Schleifer, finance editor here at Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around tech and media. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. And today in the red chair is Tom Steyer, the environmental activist and former hedge fund manager who founded Fireland Capital in 1986. And today you may know him because he's running to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020. Uh, When he jumped into the race this past July, he pledged to spend $100 million of his own money on the campaign. We'll get an update on that. And over the past five years, he's spent more than twice that to help elect other Democrats. Tom, welcome to Recode Decode.
1: Teddy, what a treat to be in this uh, windowless room with you.
0: In this beautiful windowless room, red <laughs> chair. Do you, do you know a fun fact that is true of me, you, and Andrew Yang? We went to the same high school. We all went to the same high school. We all went to the elite prep school. I went to—I um, don't know what it was like when you were there. Um, it's better now, but uh, we all went to Phillips Exeter. And uh, the fun fact is that the next debate, it might appear that a quarter of the people on the stage could have gone to the same high school. Uh, I don't know what that says about American society, but— it says something. But we're not here to talk about our alma mater, we're here to talk about uh, kind of tech. And specifically, I want to talk to you about um, about income inequality and about wealth in America. Obviously, uh, until recently, I suppose, you were the wealthiest person uh, running for president. Um, I, I, One of the wealthiest people of all time to run for president as well. I want to talk about what's kind of in the news right now. You, over the last couple uh, of days, have been talking about the other candidate who is from a, a lot of wealth. who's running for president, Michael Bloomberg. You feel that Michael Bloomberg should do one thing or drop out of the race. What is that thing?
1: Well, I've been saying for more than a couple days that he should embrace a wealth tax. I, you know, I proposed a wealth tax over a year ago, well over a year ago, long before I was running for president, because I felt that the income inequality in our society is unjust— and undemocratic and unsustainable. But beyond that, the wealth inequality around the country is dramatically worse. And that a wealth tax was a way to both raise needed resources for government programs, but also a way of redressing what has been a 40-year exacerbation of inequality around the country in a way that is just not profoundly unfair. Why is it so important that
0: Bloomberg specifically does this? I mean, I assume— Because he's so
1: rich. So he himself— I mean, if, if— If you want to represent the Democratic Party, which is representing working people across this nation, and you're—you as you know, if you're extremely rich like Michael Bloomberg or rich like me, then you should—you you have got to embrace the idea of dramatically different— and greater equality in this in this society, or you really aren't appropriate to be representing working people across this country, right.
0: And is there, is there an element to you that I mean, I assume you think all the candidates should support a wealth tax to some extent? I you know you were early on this. The issue gets tagged to like the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax. Is that frustrating? Just to know that you were kind of early on this issue. To Listen, some extent.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of inured to the idea yeah. of having ideas and having other people then jump onto the bandwagon. Have you watched the impeachment debate? Right <laughs> Right. Um, so,
0: I mean, on Bloomberg, is there is there an element of you that's that's just uh, frustrated that this is possible? You know, that someone with that much money. Obviously, I know you're wealthy. Bloomberg is, you know, one of the ten wealthiest people in the world, I believe. Is there an element of you that like you know his he's, his campaign is organized around, or at least reportedly is organized around, massive television buys? Not much early state activity, if anything. In He's not in time. the early states. Not nothing in early states at all. I don't know what this retail activity is going to look like. You've you obviously are wealthy, and you've obviously spent a ton, a ton of money on ads, which we can talk about.
1: But you're at least going. To, you're going on early states. You're not, you're not. I spent the last seven years, Teddy, going around this country and talking to people. I wouldn't consider myself you know, in any uh, appropriate to be running for president if I hadn't spent seven years looking Americans in the eye across the country from every background and learning about their reality, what they, you know, what they're facing, what the results of devastating Republican programs are to their lives and what needs to be done. What I was really saying, I think, I'm not frustrated at all about Michael Bloomberg. In my opinion, the question for everybody in this race, including him, including me, but including absolutely every person is, do you have a message that's differential, important, that registers with Democratic primary voters? And are you trusted to actually represent them and, take, you know, improve their lives and take care of their interests? That's the real question. I just feel like if you're going to represent the Democratic Party, inequality is such a basic problem structurally in America that you should be embracing the idea of greater income and wealth equality. Right.
0: What do you say to activists who say that, you know, who, who group you two together as the billionaires both trying to spend a ton of money and buy this election, buy the primary, buy a spot on the debate stage? This is not just activists, I suppose. You know, everyone from Elizabeth Warren to to other candidates
1: are saying this. Do you, you see some distinction between yourself and Bloomberg? Yeah, on we this? have really different— It's not just about a wealth tax. You know, he has very different opinions on virtually everything than I do, and that's fine. Look, my opinion on this has been— People can go to Democratic primary voters and make their case. Look I disagree with a lot of people. There's no one I agree with completely who's on that debate stage and that doesn't mean they don't have in my opinion a, an absolute right and I, makes the debate better to have people with disparate views. I don't see Michael Bloomberg as someone who holds views that are similar to mine at all.
0: Right. Is there an element though that I mean look I mean Elizabeth Warren has said this publicly you know she's talked about yourself. You just talked about Bloomberg as candidates that are buying spots on the debate stage. I know today we're recording this on the day when you said that you, know, you think the debate stage should be more open to other candidates who aren't currently scheduled to qualify. Do you feel like you would be on the debate stage if you did not have come from a lot of wealth?
1: Well, come from a lot of wealth implies or, that I inherited a lot of wealth. I inherited wealth. zero wealth, to be yeah. exact. I actually built a business from scratch and inherited zero dollars, right. which is slightly different. Slightly different Uh, than the president and others, yes. Yes. Right. Look, I think the question—here's message. I think the question, if you look across the board, the question is, are you saying something to people that responds to them? And look, if you look at my record over the last decade plus— my history is that when there's been a big problem that I perceive in the United States that I work really hard to try and work on it and I put in all my time and all my effort and I spend money to try and redress that problem. And I'm running for a very specific reason. Look, I think we have a broken government. I, until last week, I was the last person to get into this race and I got in it in July because I felt like no one was really talking in what I thought was a straightforward fashion to the American people and I felt like... It was scaring me, Mm -hmm. and I felt like someone is going to have to do that, and if no one else will do it, I'll do it. So I feel like I have a message that when I get a chance to deliver it to Americans is differential. I believe it's important. I believe I have a decade-long history of actually fighting unchecked corporate power, of putting together coalitions of American citizens to stand up for themselves and fight that unchecked corporate power successfully. And I think as an outsider, I can look at a decade of accomplishment in terms of beating corporations and building grassroots organizations to push power to the American people and away from the politicians. That's my message. Right. That message, I believe when people hear it, gets a really good response. And the question is, how do I do that? And I'm doing exactly the same thing here. I see a problem. I'm putting all my time and effort and money into the idea that we need to address this problem together. Right. that's what I'm doing. Let's just kind of set the table for some folks about
0: kind of your story, you— uh, founded a hedge fund in the, in the 80s, obviously were very successful. And then was there a moment in retrospect when you kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a, a midlife crisis, or there was an inflection point in your life, right, <laughs> where you decided that you, need to get, you wanted to f- dedicate yourself full-time to politics and philanthropy. Talk about that moment in your life and kind of what, what made you change.
1: Well, I think, you know, there were a bunch of things that changed in my life. I think, you know, one of the things was I saw, I, 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 look, I started an investment business And I had a going-in assumption that the American system of government and economics worked. And that when it didn't work, it, it got corrected. And therefore, you know, it was kind of the democracy works, the capitalism works. It takes people working at it, but it basically, it's not, you know, that things get corrected. And so, that was the assumption of starting an investment business, was that, you know what, we'll work within a system that isn't just, but is always on its way to becoming more just. And then I had kids. A bunch of things happened to me. I got a lot more religious. Hmm. I started to go to church every Sunday and think about, you know, and that's 30 years ago. You know, gosh. And I started to think in a different, con. you know, that really put a framework on life that was, you know, different. But that was literally 30, more than 30 years ago. Right. And then I also watched the American government under George W. Bush fail. And I, I thought, starting in 2001 or 2002, I thought, oh my goodness, this thing's totally out of control. This is a failed presidency. I can't sit by as a citizen and not participate, and I worked really hard for John Kerry. Right. Because I felt like, okay, he's our best chance to beat Bush. Bush will be a disaster if we don't get rid of him, and it's really important to participate to avoid disasters. right? And, you know, and when that didn't work, then I, I, I was really surprised. I definitely thought he'd lose. But at that you know, point, I it. was committed to the idea of public engagement. I had a framework on life based around a value-driven idea about what is a meaningful life. And, you know, then a the whole bunch of things happened as a result of those two things.
0: Was there a moment in, like, I mean, this is after the Bush presidency, in the early Obama years, when you start becoming kind of, you know, eventually becoming the biggest Democratic Donor in politics, but presumably, obviously, but you know, I th- I, yeah. even that, Teddy,
1: I don't really see it that way. Mm. If you look at what I've actually done, what I've done is started grassroots organizations and run propositions, right? And so, look, Next Gen America, people view that as political giving, but actually, what it is is registering, engaging, and encouraging people to vote. That, so, to me, that counts as political. But to me, that is about setting up organizations to push power to the people particularly people who are underrepresented in the system. Mm-hmm. If you look at who we've registered and we've registered millions of people, young people, people from low income neighborhoods, people of color. We've right. been trying to push participation and power to the parts of society that have been overlooked and basically underrepresented.
0: So just just to spell this out folks. So so after uh, remind me when did you retire from the hedge fund business or when did you end of 12. End of 12. Um, so at this point you'd spent like a number of years sort of being like a lot of people in politics, doing it part time, right? And then you decide uh, in after twenty twelve you're going to dedicate yourself basically full time to
1: political activism. You found Next Gen America, which is. Do you want to have a quick? But you know, but I, I yeah. think that that skips tons of time. Look, after George W. Bush got reelected, yeah, I started a community bank in Oakland, which now I think has 17 branches, which is over a billion dollars, dedicated to the ideas of economic justice, environmental sustainability, and supporting businesses owned by women and people of color. That is something that, you know, has taken, you know, that's literally getting a a bank charter, hiring people, going out and having a mission-driven community bank that is pushing all the ideas where I think the financial system is unfair to people. That happened 14 or 15 years ago. Right. It isn't like I suddenly jumped into politics. I was trying to do all the different things that I could think of right. before 2012 to figure out how to have positive change. I co-chaired a proposition in 2010, no on 23, fighting oil companies where no one else thought you could beat oil companies and we got 70% of the vote. Sure. You know, I ran a proposition in 2012 to close a corporate tax loophole and give the money to the public schools. So it's like, it wasn't like I... It wasn't like in 2012 the, the, the flip was switched and you suddenly, I was doing right. stuff all the way along. Right. And in fact, all that happened was I needed a chance to transition from my job completely without leaving my coworkers in the lurch. Right. It, something happened in 2008 in the investment world. I have to heard about it things and, a little dicier. Trevor
0: Burrus And when you kind of think about uh, the, the time from 2012 to uh, up to this current election, so I guess in your personal financial disclosure, you guys, I think you said you spent about a half billion dollars on advocacy efforts. Like, What kind of grade would you give yourself on kind of how that worked uh, overall? Because I mean there's a lot of obviously conversation about should there be this, this much money in politics, but do you feel like your, your advocacy
1: world, uh, the amount of money you spent on it, you feel like that worked? Well, I'll say this, that everything I did to broaden democracy, I think, was—I'm very proud of. Look, in 2018, Next Gen America did the largest youth voter mobilization in American history. We went in 38 districts. The turnout in those districts in the previous midterm election was under one in five young people. We more than doubled that. 33 of the districts flipped to Democratic. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, pushing— Broader democracy enabling people who aren't part of the system to become part of the system. That's something that has been dramatically overlooked in American politics. It basically is taking power away from people. Mm-hmm. And so, if you ask me, my grade on that is, the real question is, where's everybody else? Why is it that there was this gaping hole that no one else thought to fill? Are you kind of speaking specifically
0: about kind of activists or, do- or donors Or or politicians? Who do you think was sort of the
1: Democratic Party?
0: The whole party apparatus was absent on this.
1: Well, if I mean, if you go back and look and see, there's a real question about grassroots. Yeah, have we, you know, had we walked too far away from the grassroots? And I started this because I felt like, in fact, if you look, it's pretty clear that we had that young. I mean, if young people. Are voting less than one in five? Do you really, and that's the biggest generation and the most diverse generation in American history. Less than one in five. Do you really call that a representative democracy? Right. I don't. Right. I think that's a dramatic failure of democracy, and and the reasons were they didn't think the system worked and anyone told the truth. So, look. Do I think that it was important to do that? I think that was really important to do. Are you kidding?
0: So there there are there are rivals of yours who say that obviously a lot of people on the stage right now want less money in politics, including yourself half billion dollars into political giving over a, a large amount of time, sorry, over a relatively short amount of time, people would say Tom Steyer was the problem or people like Tom Steyer were the problem. Obviously, you're not funding the same things that Charles and David Koch are funding or Shel Maddison's funding. But is, are there things you kind of learned from being on the donor side
1: of the table about? But I don't think it is a donor. I'm yeah. running organizations. There's nothing about being a donor there. It's basically hiring people, setting up standards. Well, I mean, you're self-funded, self-funded organizations. Yeah, right. okay. but, but my point is, it wasn't like I'm competing. I say to everybody, yeah. you want to run voter registration drives and register millions of people. You want to go on 420 college campuses. You want to, you know, go on social media and engage young people. Here are the keys to the car. Tell me right. how the drive is. Right. The, you're making, done.
0: You're making a good point, which is that you were actually running these organizations. But it's this, more than that. Yeah.
1: There's, no compi- There's no one else. Who, it's like what we were doing, what I was doing, was trying to make sure that the power went to the people, not yeah. the politicians. Yeah. And there was a gaping hole because it wasn't happening otherwise. There's no case where you can show I was trying to do something that was going to accrue to my bottom line. There's no. We tried to be as transparent as possible. You know, I used to say to people when they would ask me questions like this. I would say, look, tell me how your conversation with the Koch brothers went. And they go, well, we haven't had a conversation with the Koch brothers. I say, exactly. Of course you haven't. Right. I'm completely open. There's nothing in this that's for my own benefit. There's something here that's a huge problem that's unacknowledged and unaddressed. Yeah. And I'm. And this organization that I funded and founded is addressing it. And I think if you look back. Actually, what people say to me now as I run for president is, I hope you're not going to stop funding those organizations about democracy. Right, right. Are there things you learned about kind of the campaign finance system being on the inside that, you well, know— it's, it's outside the campaign. This is really not about campaigns. This is about running programs 12 months a year. Yeah. I mean, we do this in 2019. Right. And 2020, not just in election years. We don't just do elections. We're out there organizing sure. all the time. But the other thing here's what I did yeah. find, Ted. Yeah. Look, when I started doing this, one of the things I was really focused on and still am is climate, and I spent several years doing different things because I could see. Look, I told you I thought the government worked, so I'm sitting here, 12 years ago or 13 years ago, 14, saying, "Wow, this isn't you know we have this problem that I'm suddenly twigging onto." Yeah. Probably later than I should have, but I'm now twigging onto this. How can the government not be working? So I invested in research. Maybe the problem is technology. So let's push the tech. We live in Northern California. Maybe this is a technology problem. It's still too expensive to do solar versus fossil fuels. Let's push to have faster technology development.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. No. <laughs> Didn't work, yeah. Not sure. Not accurate.
1: Right. Yeah. Secondly, okay. No one's really proved the case. So let's objectively put together groups of nonpartisan, specifically including famous Republicans like George Schultz and Hank Paulson uh-huh. and Mike Bloomberg, who then was, you know, had been a Republican. And we'll get a bunch of high-level executives, CEOs of major American companies, and we'll do rigorous studies to prove that clean energy will create jobs, make us better paid, make us healthier, make us grow faster, and avoid a huge problem. We did them. Didn't matter one bit. I mean, it's sort of like, I learned what doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was crazy because, you know, all this stuff, every time a a report comes out on the impact of climate or the impact of not acting on climate, I'm sort of like— I'm glad you guys are printing that because we printed that six years ago. Yeah, right. And we spent
0: tons it's of— It's not a question of, of finding the undecided undecided voter and convincing There's
1: them. no yeah. Republican lawmaker who ever called up and said, Tom, you know, that was just brilliant. <laughs> Thank <laughs> right, God right. you guys did all that work because now I know I've been 100 percent wrong and really, really screwing the American people over in a big way. Never happened. Not one time and never will.
0: So the problem the, the the your diagnosis of the problem was it was you just needed more advocacy on this. You needed people to be talking about it and
1: you needed my, my my real It's different, Teddy. Yeah. What really happened is the oil companies won't let it happen. You know, I'm running the fact that this is a broke I want to be president because this government's broken and because corporations have bought it, but there's no better example than climate. I was literally having a conversation with a national Um, publications, ed board, editorial board. Yeah. So, you go in and you know how this works. There's like 10 people in a room grilling you. Right. And they're asking me about climate and, you know, I've worked on this hard for over a decade. And they said, do you really believe that the oil companies are going to let you arrest climate change? And I was like, yes. I absolutely believe it because we have to do this. There's no choice. And I don't believe that we're going to end the world so oil companies can make tens of billions of dollars for five more years. Yes, I believe that we are going to beat them. We have to beat them, and I'm personally going to do it. And the guy was like, oh, come on. You can't believe that you'll beat the oil companies. Uh-huh. And I'm like, <laughs> I absolu- I've done it, and we're going to keep doing it because we have to. Right. But literally, they, there's no question why this is happening.
0: A colleague of mine wrote a story recently about kind of need to impeach, and, um, which I'm sure he loved. But are you kind of committed to that work uh, and, and sort of next-gen Win, we need, to, need to impeach next and, and win, win, lose, or draw here. I mean, obviously, who knows what will happen. But like, of course. The, Look, are, I've said from the you're beginning, still,
1: you're still funding these organizations. This isn't an either-or. Right. Everyone goes like, well, you got to make sure you're doing all the grassroots stuff. And I'm saying, I legally can't run the grassroots stuff, but I'm still funding the grassroots stuff because I'm a believer in power to the people. I say to everybody, you got to ask, if you think my analysis is right, we have a broken government it has been purchased by corporations. you got to ask who's going to change it. And I have a 10-year history of changing it. And I'm an outsider who is not wed to the system in any way, shape, or form. And you got to ask if anyone else is really willing to make structural changes, like I'm talking about, in order to, you know, really change the framework.
0: Right. We're here with uh, Tom Steyer, who's running for president in the 2020 Democratic primaries. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back after this. Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, Its Xbox business is going through transformational changes and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It will be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com We're back here now with Tom Steyer, the environmental activist and Democratic presidential candidate. I want to talk about philanthropy, which is uh, something that obviously does not get a lot of attention on the campaign trail. People are running for president. But you're someone who's been active in the philanthropy world, which I write a lot about these days. You've signed the Giving Pledge. Uh,
1: Long time. Gosh. First group of signers? Yeah,
0: when was was that? 2010 was when the— the gates Buffett began. I think, I okay. Think
1: well, whenever the first time was, we did it.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of how well
1: you're doing at that or how close you are or how much you've given that? As, look, we, t- we took a pledge like that to each other, my wife and I, Yeah. before we got married. You know, it's funny. We, I did that and she did that as a way of supporting Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda Gates from the concept of even the most fortunate among us are part of one whole. And that this is a country where people should rise and fall together, not have some super rich people do super well at the expense of everybody else. Mm -hmm. We were doing it as a public statement about what we believe about the United States and how we're all tied together. We'd made a pledge like that to each other before we even got married. I see. So, in fact, you know the expression, the sleeves off my vest? Yeah, right. That's what I thought that was. It was something we were always intent on doing. We always intended, and we're... so, it was It was really saying publicly what we right. said to each other in progress.
0: I mean, do you think in general that, that the wealthiest people in society are, 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 are— how important should philanthropy be to, like, addressing social problems? Like, I mean, a lot of the Gates and, you know, Buffett theory is, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you know, you should, if you give them enough money to charity, good things happen. And to be fair, there are a lot of Republicans who are very wealthy who do give a ton of money to charity. And many of these billionaires or wealthy people would probably say— that they they know what's best. That the government uh, has, you know, look at the post office. The bureaucracy doesn't work. If I fund this philanthropy, if I fund this foundation. We get stuff done. I mean, that that's the, that's maybe a gospel on the right. But like, to what extent do you think? Who are you thinking of? I, I
1: Give mean, me an example
0: uh, of of a conservative wealthy billionaire. I mean, I mean the Kochs, right? I mean the Kochs, obviously. They didn't take the giving pledge. They have not taken the giving pledge, but they not given, even
1: close. To what extent do you think that more philanthropy is the answer? Look, I'm not someone who looks to philanthropy for the answer, to be fair. I'm I'm running for president because I believe in government. I believe in the will of the people, and I believe in power to the people. I don't believe in power to the plutocrats. Sorry. So, you know, if you look at what I've been spending my time on, I've been spending my time, really, on trying to get power to ordinary citizens because I believe the wisdom in America resides with the people, honestly. Right. so if you ask me, I say this about politicians all the time. I say, who do you trust? The people or the politicians? I mean, I'm pushing for a term limit in Congress and Senate of 12 years, and I'm pushing for direct democracy to have a national referendum like the way we have propositions in California because I believe in the people's decision-making power. So no, I'm not someone who wants to concentrate it in some group of people who are supposedly smarter than everybody else. Right. But basically their
0: theory of the case, I mean, tell me if you disagree, their theory of the case implies that... Government's inefficient, and we're going to do a better job, and yada, yada, right? Right, right. And that, and that we've made money, therefore we are smart, therefore trust us, right? Have
1: you heard me say any of those words? No,
0: no, no, no. But, like, I mean, that is what a lot of people on the right sort of see
1: philanthropy as part of I the keep sl- asking you who, who you yeah. have in mind. You came up with the Kochs, who, who I consider to be some of the least philanthropic people ever. Right. So in terms of their relationship with society— uh, no, I you you I'm you have to do a job of convincing me on that because I'm on the other side of that argument. I want you to give me an example. You know, I mentioned the Kochs
0: because they've given a ton of money to think tanks,
1: right? And they would say that that's self-serving think tanks uh-huh. that come up with reasons to explain why you know working on your own bottom line expense of everybody else and is fine.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. Or uh, let's take uh, someone like Larry Ellison, who is given a ton of money, who signed the Giving Pledge, gives money to charity, is not someone who. Is necessarily pushing for higher wealth taxes? I think the argument is there's a lot of billionaires out there who are not supporting wealth taxes. Oh, I, I, I would say that mo- is most Teddy. most They're, most people most uh, people agree there. Trust right? me, right, That right. one I've heard right. a lot of they don't like it one bit. bit. Sure. So I, tell me if, if you disagree, but you sort of see philanthropy as insufficient. Like, you oh, have, no question about it. Are you kidding me? Of course it you're is. You're the giving pledge because you personally think it's maybe you know. An, add, just, an additive, right? And, like, more money charity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I think that, in fact, the fact that Americans are charitable, rich Americans are charitable at the level of they are, is completely different from their country in the world. Yeah. You know, I don't think Americans, by and large, believe in generational wealth. I know I don't. And so, it, we're much more, if you look statistically, rich Americans are charitable in a way that other countries' rich people aren't. And I think that does say something, which I was originally saying, which is, I think in America, we're a democracy. Right. We should all know we are going to rise and fall together. The idea that you can succeed when the bulk of Americans are failing is baloney. That is not success, and by the way, it won't it isn't sustainable either. So we should anyone who thinks that should get over it.
0: Yeah. What do you mean the argument kind of behind uh, against a wealth tax that it could hurt charitable giving? That basically that part of the advantage right now is that. You know, with what happened
1: to those really, really charitable right wingers you were talking to me about, Teddy? Did they suddenly, suddenly discover self interest? <laughs>
0: so, I think I think that's a reasonable argument if, if if you're sort of okay with the fact that maybe charitable giving will be affected, but there'll be more government spending, right? Be, I, it's yeah. not close call.
1: Yeah. Honest to goodness, I, that that is not a good argument in yeah, my I, mind. Sure. I, I don't buy that for a second. I believe. Look, I keep saying. I, the people who I trust are the people of the United States, and to the extent that we have fairly elected representatives, I respect them. Right. But I am not looking for anybody else to be solving our problems. Right.
0: I want to chat about tech wealth uh, specifically. I'm just curious. So you're obviously in San Francisco. We were talking earlier. Do you feel like you know a lot of the players in kind of the tech world personally? Or I, obviously, you were not? You were in finance originally, um, not in—you were not running you know, a public tech company, though I, I'm humored by the fact that John Delaney was a— uh, Ran a startup that you backed at one point, right? Uh, twice. Twice. Um, how would you describe your relationships with sort of the the major tech leaders? In, in are these people you know personally or not? Really? Some of them I do know f- pretty well. Yeah, f- but I know them as friends and colleagues and things outside business. Mostly. Right. So these aren't these aren't people who are you know the, even though you're in, in San Francisco and even though you know a lot of powerful folks, you're not buddies of the Mark Zuckerberg or the. Uh, some of them are my <laughs> friends. Yeah, actually, some of them are my friends. Yeah, at a high level, give folks a sense about whether or not you think these companies have too much power. Um, obviously, there's some candidates in, in I'm going to go with yes. There's some candidates in this field who are going to talk about this a lot, right? We have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who are calling to break up
1: the companies. My understanding is you are not explicitly calling— Actually, it. what I've said is yeah. I don't believe we've enforced the antitrust laws, specifically with regard to tech, but yeah. also across the board. I mean, if you look at concentration of American corporations, we have not— a, controlled concentration in this country for the last 40 years, really. We've allowed much more concentration, including in tech. And in tech, you can really see it. And plus, there are companies that touch a lot of consumers. But I think it's true across the board. Why not kind of say specifically the way that Warren has, like, I want to rig up Facebook or something like that? Well, I think in each one of these cases, it's the antitrust rules actually are specific and different. So I think that the way that I think Amazon is... Unfair is different from the way that Facebook is unfair. Right. And so, to say we should break up all the tech companies is a, you know, broad brush to something that's actually specific in the way that, that in my mind, they're overconcentrated and abusing their power. Right. So, if you look at Facebook, I mean, the, the argument to my mind is hinges on the question of whether it's a natural monopoly. And, and there's a real question there. And, there, you know, when you think about Facebook, there's questions about privacy. There's questions about—you know, there's a number of different questions raised by Facebook. But you started by saying, do I think they have too much control? And I said, yes. Yeah. And then the question is, given that that is shown in multiple ways, then when you think about solutions to the multiple ways— they're different.
0: Right. But, like, the idea of calling out specific companies, I mean, to be clear, I mean, two of your rivals are doing this explicitly, right? I mean, this is not an out their idea. Right? Not at all. Look, yeah. I,
1: I think it's completely fair. Right. I mean, I think, you know, and I'm saying specifically, do I think that Amazon and Facebook are over-concentrated in terms of power and are breaking antitrust laws that are not being enforced against them? Yes. Right. And, but it's like saying break them up is a simplistic way of saying actually when you look at Amazon, they have a horizontal problem. Actually, when you look at Facebook, they probably have a – I mean they have a vertical problem. And when yeah. you look at Facebook, they have a horizontal problem. Right. Yeah. So it's a different answer. But they're both, in my mind, overconcentrated and taking advantage of American consumers. For, for sure.
0: I'm just curious. Where does, where does this rank on kind of the, the Tom Steyer agenda, this sort of issue? Obviously, you've said climate change is the number one issue facing the United States. I mean – Number one priority. Look, I, 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 spent a lot, I spent a lot of time, uh, I went with Warren for a few days uh, a couple weeks ago at this point, and, you know, she talks a lot about this issue. But, like, what would you say to folks who say that, you know, what, what, well, who cares what happens with Facebook? It's not affecting my life. Climate change, you know, it does affect a lot of people's lives
1: directly. Where does this issue, where do, where do tech issues rank in kind of your issue set? Look, said, to me, do I know that this is an important issue? Yes. I've said I'm the only person in this race, including Elizabeth Warren, who'll say that climate's their number one priority. I'm the only person mm-hmm. because I believe it is the number one priority, and I believe, I would de- declare a state of emergency on day one. I'd de- use the emergency powers of the presidency. I'd make it the number one priority of foreign policy. So I think I'm taking this, really, it. It's really, priorities, as you know— It's or, the whole thing. It's the whole thing, right? <laughs> like say, saying here are my 10 biggest priorities, it's like right. really because that means— No one, no one really gets you pressed never get, on that. You never get to number stage. three. Right. You probably don't get to number two. Right, right. So everything's a crisis and everything's a priority. Really? That's not the way the world works, right? So, particularly in major changes in society. So when I look at this, I look at this as an example, an important example of corporations buying the government. The government is abdicating its responsibility to protect American consumers. Yeah, is that important? Absolutely, it's important. Should we be acting on this? Absolutely, we should be acting on this. Are we seeing it from the drug companies as well? Heck, yes, we're seeing it from the drug companies. Are we seeing it from private hospitals and insurance companies? Heck, yes. Are we seeing it from the banks? Yes. Now, these happen to be monster big companies with gigantic consumer footprints. So, they're affecting a lot of people. And, you know, you're talking about break them up Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of money. But, you know, there's a privacy issue here that's, you know, really huge. Amazon's is much more about a vertical taking advantage of your monopoly in order to, you know, work down the chain and sell your own stuff at an advantage. That's been true since the railroads with Teddy Roosevelt in right. 1902, Right, 120 years ago. We were having to deal with that problem. It's straightforward. We should, the government should be stepping in. There's a question in terms of, you know, what is proper speech on the Facebook platform and how to actually control and monitor that? And that's a real question. It's not something in my mind which is going to be settled by Facebook. That is a question that should be addressed by the government of the United States representing the people of the United States.
0: Similarly, uh, I'm always fascinated by the extent to which some individual people and individual wealthy tech executives have become characters in in the uh, day-to-day political drama now. When you have a candidate like Warren talking about Mark Zuckerberg and saying, boo-hoo, crocodile tears are today – uh, when we're recording this, she was going after Larry Page uh, on Twitter. Do you think that's appropriate for a presidential candidate to be kind of calling out private citizens and their personal wealth, and Warren obviously is attacking individual billionaires and saying things about kind of their their practices? Is that, is that appropriate?
1: Look, I think if someone's running a huge corporation in ways that you find contrary to the interest of the American people, then I do think it's appropriate. And I would use, to step away from the example you're using, yeah. but to use a different one, do I think what the Kochs have done is wrong? Yes. Right. Do I think that they should be called on it? Yes. Do I think that that's appropriate? And do I think that you could say the same thing during the mortgage crisis? Specific people running companies in specific ways that were against the interests of the American people? Yes. Do I think it's appropriate in some of these drug scandals? For sure. I, I, I do. And so... You know, I'm not sure exactly what she's saying about Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Right. I I really don't. But do I think the idea that when you have responsibility and leadership over America, a major American institution that you are, in effect, playing a public role and can be called on the carpet in a public fashion? I don't think that's inappropriate.
0: We're going to take another quick break, and we'll be back after this for a final few thoughts with Tom Steyer. We're back here with Tom Steyer, the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. Last thing, I just want to talk a little bit about kind of partisan politics and um, uh, kind of the campaign as you see it right now. I mean, uh, we're recording this in early December. It's just after Thanksgiving. Can you kind of visualize what the next couple months looks like for your campaign? (laughs) No.
1: (laughs) Look, it's about two months to the Iowa caucuses. And then after that, it's one month. There are three other early primary states, which are New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina— And then about a month after the Iowa caucuses is Super Tuesday. Back here in California. Right. So I have been saying all along, I don't know what the changes are going to be, but expect big changes in this race. So if you'd said to me two months ago, Mike Bloomberg is going to get in, skip the four early primary states, spend tons of money on TV and run. Would you have I said that that's going to happen? I'd say it could happen. Right. But I can't say it will happen. And if you told me that Kamala Harris was going to drop out on the 3rd of December, I would have said, no, that can't happen. Yeah. So I expect a lot more things to change. And I think that this is a momentous election and that we'll know that because I think the turnout will be a record high. I think it will be, look, I'm a turnout person, right? I'm a grassroots person. It's all about getting people engaged and showing up. If I'm right about my turnout prediction— then it's going to be a gigantic Democratic sweep. Do
0: you feel like there's anything you've learned as you've kind of watched? Uh, <laughs> you, mentioned, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned Kamala Harris. I mean, like, we've now seen, uh, as, as when we're recording this, a bunch of candidates have dropped out of me in just the last week. Is there any, not to put on your, your pundit hat, but you're running a campaign, you see these people up close. Is there anything you feel like you've learned about what voters are looking for um, from candidates that have not succeeded I so far? I can tell
1: you this, that, and this isn't really from watching them, but this is from my personal experience, mm-hmm. is this. We over-intellectualize what's going on in the United States of America. Huh, what do you mean by that? If you, I, you know, we ran over 50 impeachment town halls. I led over 50 impeachment town halls, in, including in some of the reddest states in the United States. Uh-huh. And what you see when you go to red states, I mean, we're broadcasting from California, which is a deep blue state. Right. When you see red states, they have a very straightforward program. This is a Republican governor, Republican state senate, Republican state legislature. They cut taxes on the richest people and the biggest corporations, first move. Secondly, they cut education spending, both K through 12 and higher ed, always. They cut healthcare, always. They allow as much pollution as possible on the concept that it's important that corporations make money, and that's more important than whether citizens are healthy and live, literally. They work as hard as possible to take away the rights of working people, to organize, to negotiate for themselves, to do so many basic things, even to tell the truth about what's going on in their workplace outside of work. You can be fired for that. So how does this overintellectualizing of— Because it's simple. It's just cruelty. Every single one of those things is a cruel act. You're talking about cutting education. Okay. You're telling young people in the United States of America you're not going to get to live the life that you deserve— that you're capable of, and that we could support. No, our tax money is more important than that. Cutting taxes for a treatable. You're telling people, we're not, no, no healthcare. You're gonna have to be sick or die because our tax money is more important. That's the same thing with clean air and clean water, often racially based. You're telling people, no, we're not gonna pay a living wage. Nope, it's not gonna happen. You're just gonna have to suffer. And when you see it, and you go around the country and you see what that means. And that is exactly the economic program of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Precisely their economic program. I mean, they have social programs that are also, I completely disagree with. But this is about economics. It's cruel. And when you see people suffering needlessly but, with, but cruelly, it's simple. This is a fight. We talk about all these programs. We talk about some insider Political jargon like block grants and, mm-hmm. you know, deficit spending and all these things that people who don't spend a lot of time thinking about politics— That's what are. you mean by over there. It's simple. Yeah. They're being cruel. That's all it is. It's not more complicated than that. There are people who are suffering needlessly so other people can get away with what they want. And it's wrong. It, it's absolutely wrong. And so when you, you ask me, what do I think matters? Yeah. I think Americans—it's time for us to really turn the page on this. This is 40 years of a false framework for how America works set up originally by Ronald Reagan with, you know, great storyteller, great smile, talented person, dead wrong and in a cruel way. And it's we really have got to get away from virtually everything that he told us because it was all untrue.
0: All right. Thank you, Tom, for coming on. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Teddy Schleifer and Rico Decode's regular host, Kara Swisher at Kara Swisher. Okay, executive producer Eric Anderson is at Erica America and our producer Eric Johnson is at Hey Hey ESJ. Tom, what is your Twitter handle? At Tom, Steyer at Tom Yeah. At TomStyre. Tom if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you share it with a friend and make sure you listen to our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thank you to our editor, Joel Robbie, And thanks for listening to this episode of Rico Decode. Kara Swisher will be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.